0: So for those of you who were with us last week, <clears throat> at the end of uh, our gathering, you notice the, all, the whole altar was filled with these white plastic spoons. And I gave you this challenge and I said, how hungry are you to go deeper with God and how hungry are you to live out the freedom of God? And so I challenge you to carry these with you all throughout the week as a reminder. How many of you... Carried your spoon all throughout the week. It's amazing how many emails, how many phone calls, how many text messages, how many pictures that I received of your spoons. I saw your spoon at McDonald's having coffee. I saw your spoon on Highway 90, 79. I saw it at Walmart. Uh, you guys were everywhere, but I am sad to announce, I do have a little bit of an announcement to make that um, we are in the process of mourning a loss this morning uh, with, a few, with a past spoon that was with us. If uh, we could see the picture, please. <sighs> in case you have heard the rumors, it is true. One of our small group leaders actually was with their small group and the incident took place. And uh, they were challenging their small group about carrying their spoon and what they've been doing with their spoon all week. And they took responsibility to some degree, and they put it in their back pocket. And about 10 minutes later, they forgot about their spoon and sat on it, hence the evidence. Um, So some of us are in mourning today about the loss of that spoon. But anyways, I want to encourage you to continue to carry your spoons, as a reminder, everywhere that you go, because we eat with these, we, we always encounter there's these wherever we go, and it's a solid reminder to us about going deeper with God and digging in to live out the freedom that Christ has given us. But along the lines of a spoon, how many of you ever heard or used the phrase, uh, the proof of the pudding, or the proof is in the pudding? None of you? That's good. Okay, yeah, usually when I ask a question, that means we participate. So... Anyways, I have today a snack pack of pudding Now for those of you who are the Daniel police For the Daniel fast I'm just going to tell you to be at ease And relax uh, Because this is Daniel friendly pudding Not um, Mitch, come on up here, Miss Jones So a lot of times we use this phrase The the proof of the pudding Or the proof is in the pudding So I want to find out if this is true So here's your spoon Here's your snack pack just go ahead and open it. And I want you to take a couple bites when, when you open it. No rush. Just go ahead. Yeah, yeah, eat it. Yeah. A, little, a couple more. You obviously ate breakfast this morning. Okay, okay that's yours because I, I don't want that. Um, so, so i wanna, I got to ask you, is the proof in the pudding? Yeah? Okay. All right, thank you. Go sit down. I don't think he knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And let us pray. So we <laughs> gotta collect myself. So we use this phrase, uh, the proof of the pudding, or the proof is in the pudding. And I did some studying on that, and it's actually slang. It's actually shorthand. The actual wording of this is that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. That's the actual phrase. The other ones that we use are shorthand. Does anybody know what that means? Anyone have an idea? Yeah. You know how good it is only by tasting. Okay. So it went from a pudding to a sermon. so uh, to a sermon. But uh, anyways, yeah, it's it's kind of like the only way you're gonna know if it's good is if you taste it yourself, if you experience it. The actual wording for this when it says the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It actually means to fully test something, you need to experience it yourself. But then you go a little further in the meaning, which I found was pretty cool. This is what it says The evidence that demonstrates truth. So when we say the proof is in the pudding, uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, it actually also means the evidence that demonstrates truth. And I thought, you know, there's something in this about God that is so critical about evidence and truth, because this morning we're talking about the proof. So as a community of faith, we've been in this, the series called Reveal Jesus, entitled Act 1, where we have been learning how to love Christ. And in the act, we're learning how to love Christ, and anytime we discuss Jesus, because he's been the focal point of this whole series, we encounter evidence— And we encounter truth. Christ always demonstrated who he was and proved the evidence. There was something there that proved who he was, that he was the Christ. And then he always demonstrated truth. He spoke the truth. He never lied. He always spoke the truth of God. In fact, in John 14, 6, he always quoted and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me except through The Father. So he not only lived it, but he talked about it. And if you've been a follower of Jesus, even for a minimal amount of time, you realize and understand that following Christ is not a cakewalk. So, a former persecutor of Christians, murderer, esteemed religious leader, actually encountered the proof of Jesus on his road, in his travels, on assignment to actually persecute more followers of Christ. In fact, he was on the road called Damascus. His name was Paul, previously known as Saul. He was known to be an esteemed religious leader who believed that he was doing the work and will of God by killing and persecuting those who proclaimed that Jesus Christ was Lord of their life. Literally on an assignment, traveling down the Damascus road, Paul encounters the evidence and truth of Jesus Christ. And he gives his heart to Jesus. Meaning that he believes in his heart, and he confesses with his mouth, and he makes Jesus Lord of his life, confesses that he's short of what God requires. And he says that I'm no longer dependent on my own strength, but I realize the only way to be in continuous relationship with you forever is to accept Jesus, and that's what happened. Hence, we fast forward a little bit, and we come to this letter Written to the Church of Colosse called the Book of Colossians. Where Paul goes through this whole transformation with Jesus, and then he spends time with the Church of Colossae, and he begins to pour out this whole thing about how we are to love Christ. So come with me now. Fast forward, we're in this little small merchant town surrounded by a buffet of gods and false truth. And in the midst of that, in the center of that, we find this place called the Church of Christ the universal church of Jesus, where these men and women are huddled together in the midst of a place that does not believe in truth but preaches false teachings, and they are striving to demonstrate and understand and know and talk and walk and live the evidence and truth of this one they know as Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that through his letters to Colossae that the evidence of revealing Jesus is viewed through our lifestyle of truth. You know, if we claim to love Jesus and we desire to live him out, we have to live out the resurrected life, and we have to act like it, and we have to live it out in multiple ways. Last week I talked about the freedom that we have to live this out, and so today we're going to talk about the proof. Basically meaning this, that if you're a follower of Christ, and I told you what that is, then there should be something that comes along with it. There should be evidence, there should be proof. Some of you in this room today are doctors. You obviously aren't professing that you're a doctor and not have a degree to back that up. You, don't, you profess to be a doctor because you have the evidence that you've gone to school, you've gotten the credentials, you know what you're doing, so now you're, you have this ability now and this entitlement to say that you are a doctor because you have the evidence, you have the truth. Some of you here in this room work at GE in different places. You have the ability to say that you work at GE because you have the evidence to prove that you work at GE. And it's the same way as followers of Jesus, that if we claim that we're followers of Christ and that we love God and we're striving to live out this resurrection life, then there has to be evidence that backs it up. It can't just be something that we talk about. Part of the proof is that we are not circumstantial. You know, as followers of Jesus, we're not dependent on our external circumstances, meaning that the job that we lost recently, that does not determine our relationship with Jesus. The marriage that we're in that's rocky right now, or the death that has just happened that we have questions about, but we seem to be getting no answers, that does not determine our relationship with Christ. Look with me in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. This is what Paul says to the church of Colossae as well as to us. He says, Since then... You have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Circle this phrase, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Jesus, who is your life, appears, meaning his return when he returns for us, then you will also, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul basically announces and says to us, he says, okay guys, here's the deal. Don't be absorbed by the things that are going around you in your earthly circumstances. But be absorbed by the things that are going on above you, beyond the realm that which you can see with your physical eyes. Paul says to us, he's like, listen, don't be a sponge and soak up what is going on at this level right now in your life because it's not going to matter. He says and he encourages the church of Colossae, and he ch- encourages us and he says, listen, if you're gonna be a sponge, then begin to soak up, begin to meditate on, begin to grab hold of that which is above you, that which is on Christ's level and begin to live your life in that way. Because we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be in communication with the Holy Spirit and we're supposed to be available to the Holy Spirit so that we can be alert and available for what he is doing, that is all part of our proof. But if we are absorbed by what is going on down here constantly about what is going on in in the workplace or on our campuses or on our schools or what's going on at home, that limits our focus to be dependent on the Holy Spirit, and then we begin to lose focus and not listen to what the Holy Spirit says, and we lose our alertness to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Some friends of mine uh, are friends with another guy, <laughs> and um, I learned this from this other guy. And I asked him one time. I said, "Hey, what what is it that you do? What is your ministry?" And I loved this answer. He said, "I have the ministry of availability." And I sat back and I'm like, "The ministry of availability? What do you mean by that?" He said, "I'm just available to what the Spirit wants." He said, if the Spirit says go here, I go there. If the Holy Spirit tells me to go here, I go there. I don't want to be fastened down, fastened down to thinking that I have to do this because of this and this and this. He said, I just make myself available to the Spirit. That's my ministry. I thought, wow, you know, for followers of Jesus, that's what we're called to do. But when we're circumstantial and we focus on everything that is right here, we no longer have the ministry of availability. So Paul goes on to say this whole thing about renewing our minds. And if you're like me, that phrase can be pretty confusing. In fact, renewing our minds is kind of like a a Rubik's Cube. No matter which way we twist it, no matter which way we turn it, no matter whatever we do, no matter what system we try to create or put in place to try and really figure this out, which in those of you thinking that I'm going to put this together in a minute, I'm not, just so you quit holding your breath. But anyways... We try to get these things in place and we try to figure it all out and we just get frustrated about this whole phrase of renewing our minds. And then we give up. And we just throw it away and we say, oh gosh, I'm never gonna figure this out. I don't understand this whole renewing of the mind thing so I'm just gonna leave it up to God and I'll just do whatever and I'll just exist. Well, that's not the case. See, renewing our minds is all part of that dependency of being on the Holy Spirit and not being circumstantial. To renew our minds means that we partner with the Holy Spirit willingly. It means that we're to develop an internal reference point, meaning we're to have a target set in this thing, in our minds. How many of us realize that our minds wander a lot? Some of them are doing it right now. So just bring it back. Paul tells us in the Word of God, he says, take every thought captive and submit it to Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit wants us to set a target in our mind, a focal point that we continuously focus on. So how do we do that? The way we renew our mind is to stay in the Word of God. By constantly feasting and feeding on the Word and studying the Scriptures and memorizing Scripture, we are able to create a focal point, an internal reference point that we are able to retreat back to when this gets us in trouble. That's what renewing of the mind is. You see, our mind, God wants our mind to come to a place where our mind is consumed with Him 24-7. See, in the, in the Word of God, it tells us in the book of Revelation that our beginning, and there will be no end, is with Christ. We were originally created to spend eternity with God. We were originally created to comprehend and to think and to worship God through singing and to worship God through service 24-7. And sin enters the world, and that changes everything. But Jesus says, don't worry, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you. And that's going to be your full-time deal. And so one way we start is now, is renewing our minds right now, right here, in preparation for when Christ returns. See, here's the whole deal. I've come to realize that when we resist God, a contraction in the Spirit happens. It's kind of likened to a woman going through labor. Now, because obviously I'm not a woman, I don't really know what a contraction feels like. And I have no desire to know, but what I did is I went on and I checked out the medicals and I wanted to find out what a contraction really means. When a woman is in labor and a contraction begins to happen, there is a hardening that takes place in the womb. The body tenses up, and there's an intense hardening that takes place and an extreme discomfort that the woman begins to experience. And in between the contractions, there is a moment of relief. Before the moment where the child comes out, there is a slow relief, but then all of a sudden, before the child comes, the contraction increases, and it gets harder. When we resist the Holy Spirit and we choose not to renew our minds, a contraction happens in the Spirit. What I mean by that is we begin to get hard. We begin to come to a place of discomfort. It doesn't feel good. And we, we get into this spot where we live with the moments of relief, and we get into this place in our walk with Jesus that we we're like, okay, if I can, I can just make it through this, this one thing and then, oh, okay, relief. And we get into this habit that we begin to lack in renewing our minds because we're lacking in reading the word and without realizing it, we begin to harden on the inside. We begin to get this dis- discomfort and then we begin to say that, well, that's normal. That's going to happen. No, it's not. We are not designed to have contractions in the Spirit. We are designed to be released in the Spirit. We are not designed to have the discomfort in the Spirit or the hardness in the Spirit. We are designed to release in the Spirit and allow things to properly flow. So when we submit to the Spirit, an expansion happens. When we submit to the Spirit, an expansion happens. That is when the proof, the evidence and truth of Christ steps in. Because we're available to the Spirit through the renewing of our minds. When we think and process our circumstances through Christ, transformation takes place. When we deal with the habitual sins of our lives, we can't get over that barrier of the language that we use, and we have a potty mouth and we allow our minds to be transformed by the renewing of the word, and we make ourselves available to the spirit, transformation happens, and our language barrier changes. Or because we were abused at a young age, and we were the innocent ones, But we have taken that abuse and instead of giving it to Christ and allowing us to renew our minds and to to focus on him and allow him to be our justifier, we take it and we make it our crutch. And we become identified by that. But when we take that, that situation and we submit it to the Spirit and we renew our minds constantly with the word of God, we begin to see that God is our justice and he is our justifier And that God will take care of those circumstances even though we were innocent. Transformation in our lives begins to happen and we no longer take that abuse of situation and keep it as a crutch. Instead, we throw the crutch away and we begin to walk normal. And we are able to prove to other people and say, hey, I understand where you're at. I know what you went through, but let me tell you what, I've got proof that Jesus can transform your life. Paul goes on to say he uses the word hidden and in that word hidden in the Greek is the word crypto. It actually means to conceal something. Conceal from sight, which is pretty awesome because that tells us Paul tells us that we're hidden in Christ. So understand this, the easy part is over, guys. The easy part is over, okay? Take a deep breath. Ready? And let it out. Some of you might need a mint. But the easy part is over. This is the good thing. The easy part is over because Paul tells us that we're hidden in Christ. We're concealed with Christ. That means when we gave our life to Jesus, Jesus has taken us and hidden us away. We're protected. But the hard part is, the disciplined part of a follower of Christ now, is we have to renew our minds. We cannot be circumstantial any longer. So the easy part is over. The eternal salvation in Christ is taken care of for us. But now the hard part is we have to discipline ourselves to renew our minds so we're not circumstantial so that we can in return prove that Christ has set us free in those circumstances. Another part of the proof is that we die to live. That phrase, we die to live, is what we call a paradox. A paradox is conflicts with our common sense the kingdom of christ is a paradox jesus came and everything that he basically said absolutely conflicted with common sense for example jesus would say if you want to live you have to die okay if you want to be great in the kingdom of god then you have to lower yourself to the floor you must serve instead of be served Okay? If you want to be wealthy spiritually, then give everything that you have. Okay? It's a paradox. Everything that Jesus and the kingdom of God that we encounter is paradoxical. And you can't follow Christ and expect not to live a paradoxical life. For example, I just told you a minute ago that we must die in order to live. How many of you remember the last time that you were really excited about a death? No one. We don't get excited about death. We don't get overjoyed. We don't have parties and say, hey, that was a great funeral. Man, man, I, I love that. That was great. We got to do those more often. We don't do that because death hurts. Death hurts. We don't like death. It it, it brings loss. It causes us to mourn. It brings suffering. But Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, he's like, listen, hey guys, here's the deal. If you want to live, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to mourn. You're going to have to hurt a little. But we don't like to hear that. We like to hear the whole thing live and let live. But Christ comes along and he tells us this paradoxical phrase, and then Paul relives it and says, basically, listen, guys. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus and you're going to have to produce the proof and show the evidence and the truth of God, you're going to have to die in order to live this. There's never anything attractive about death. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. Right off the beginning he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. If you back up into that verse in verse 5 where it says evil desires and greed, it actually means sexual greed. I thought that was just interesting that you might want to know that. And he considers that to be idolatry. But the challenge for us is not to simply suppress or control our wicked acts or attitudes. The phrase that Paul uses when he says, put to death, is actually a call to make extreme action. It's not a phrase that's like, just talk about it. You know, put to death, it sounds cool. What he's saying is, is here's the deal— You have to take extreme action when encountering these measures in your life. You can't play with it. You can't tease it. You can't toy with it. You gotta end it right now. That phrase, put to death, is a very, very strong, serious phrase that Paul mentions. He says you're basically called to wipe out and exterminate the sin that remains within you and make sure that when you do it, You use force. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus tells his disciples, and he says, if anyone tries to gain their life, they will lose it or save their life. But if you want to live, then you will lose your life. It's another one of those paradoxical moments. Jesus tells us that real fulfillment comes from a radical denial of our selfishness. The picture, the picture, you have to understand the way the, the, the Jews were when they wrote the word of God, they were very symbolic people, very pictorial-minded people. So when they would write something, there was always a symbol behind it or a story or a meaning. There was always a picture behind it. In the Greek, when it talks about putting this to death and doing extreme measure, the picture is of, though of that of like a man having his hand caught in a millstone. I got to understand this. In those days, a millstone was not like this little tiny little hand crank that, you know, you put a little wheat or a little barley in and you're just like, you know, and it's like, you're done. These were big, big, huge, circular things made of concrete and mortar. And in, the, in, in that concrete and mortar, there was a path maybe about this wide. And then, in that path, they would put all the grain and what they were going to mill. They would put it in there and pour it around. And then they would place this huge millstone, this round millstone, about almost as wide as the track. And they would stick a big, huge piece of wood through it so that they could use it. And generally, what would happen is they would either use an animal to actually cause the millstone to move and circle it, or they would do it themselves with a bunch of people. And they would let that millstone run until all that grain was crushed to where it needed to be. But the picture is, is that of of a man who gets his hand caught in the millstone and the millstone is still moving. So the man has to take extreme measure and cut off his hand so the rest of his body will not be engulfed. Same way with our sin. Paul tells us and says, here's the deal. Take the extreme measures. Cut off whatever it is that needs to be cut off. And if it's your hand that's causing it, cut it off. And he's not saying literally cut your hand off, but what he's saying is cut off the source immediately because the rest of your body is going to suffer if you don't get rid of it. Death to self allows us to give absolute commitment to a cause that is much greater than our immediate passions. That is Jesus manifested evidence and truth of loving Christ. In verse 8, Paul emphasizes the importance of holy living. Holy means to set apart. If you see in the book of Revelation, it says that the seraphim are 24-7, surrounding the throne of God, and they're saying, holy, 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 they're saying, set apart, set apart, set apart different, other than. And Paul tells us as followers of Christ that we're called to be set apart. We're called to be different. We're called to act differently and speak differently and think differently. And I'm beginning to understand that when we do not fear God, we will not fear sin. Let me repeat that. When we do not fear God, we will not fear sin. Scriptures say that sin is coming short of what God requires us. And it's interesting because I thought about this and I reference back to Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, we have the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Christ because at the time the end thing was to follow Rabbi Jesus because this guy had all the goods. So the rich young ruler goes to Rabbi Jesus and he says to him, Rabbi Jesus, I want to come follow you. I want to be with you. I want to be your disciple. I want to be your Talmid, your Talmidon. And Jesus says, okay, this is what it says in the word. Honor your mother and your father. And then he goes on to say, don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit murder, all these things. And the rich young ruler says, I've done all that. I've done all that since I was little. I've lived a perfect life. Sound familiar? Jesus, I've done all that. I worship on Sunday through singing. I make sure my tithe is in on time. I go to the altar every now and then. And, and, and I, I go and I serve people. I help people out who are needy. But then Christ comes along and says, oh, he says to the rich young ruler, oh, yeah, and uh, okay, if you've done all that already, now go sell all of your possessions and come follow me. It then goes on to say that the rich young ruler went away disappointed because he couldn't give away his wealth. Jesus comes to us and he says, Hey, that right there in your heart, I want you to give that away and come follow me. I want the proof. Because according to my dad's standards, that's coming up short of what he requires. See, Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and he says, I'm sorry, but here's the deal. You're still coming up short of what my dad requires. So here's your chance. Go get rid of that. Come follow me. And he didn't. So Jesus comes to us and he says, here's your chance. Here's your chance. If you just give this up, This is what my dad requires of you. But if we lack our fear in God, we lack our fear of sin. And if we have a high view of God, then we'll have a high view of sin. And if we have a low view of God, then we have a low view of sin. I've come to realize that as I concentrate on the cross, as I concentrate on the fear of the Lord, and as I concentrate on the holiness of God, I realize there's areas in my heart that do not fear God. Because I don't fear that sin. But I tell you, the more we spend time with Jesus and confronted by his truth, the evidence will come. And Jesus puts his finger on our hearts and he says, hey, prove to daddy that you fear him and have a high view of him. So you have a high view of that sin in your life and you want to get rid of it. Proof of loving Jesus means we don't dress for comfort. How many of you dress, you have like a routine of dressing comfortably when you get home? only a couple of you. So you like stay in your suit and your tie and that's how you go to bed? That's pretty interesting. I have this routine when I go home. What I like to do is I like to put on a hoodie, a sweatshirt, and I like to put on sweatpants, and I like to put on a nice thick pair of socks. I don't want to wear shoes. I don't want to wear a t-shirt. I don't want to wear a dress shirt. I don't want to wear a tie. I just want to relax I want to be able to breathe I want to enjoy myself I want to be comfortable so when I when I snuggle into my couch and I pull up my blanket I'm comfortable so as a pastor sometimes I'm required to go to funerals or to do funerals sometimes I'm required to go to weddings or to perform weddings now imagine if I showed up in my hoodie and my sweatpants and my big thick socks. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today. <laughs> why would why, why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I do that? It's inappropriate. It's not the right time, right? There's always a time and a place, correct? To so the way we dress. So I wouldn't really, honestly, I mean, some of you probably think that I'm pushing it by wearing jeans and a sweater on a Sunday morning preaching the word of God. But I'd really be pushing it if I just showed up in my thick socks, my sweatpants, and my sweatshirt, because that's inappropriate. Imagine if we were always the type of people who dress for comfort everywhere we go. We go to the bank like that. We go to our job like that. Some of us, we have to conduct interviews with people. So we just show up and we're interviewing them. We're in our hoodie and our sweatshirt. We got our Doritos, you know, our crumbs, you know, just hanging there. A little bit of toothpaste dribble because, you know, we were brushing our teeth this morning. Or, you know, we show up, we, we just, you know, we go to the next wedding that we're supposed to go at, you know, friends of the family. So we show up, we show up with our wedding gift. Where's the gift table? And, you know, we got those, those, those sweatpants that we haven't washed in a week. You know what I'm talking about. And we just keep putting on every day. Don't deny it. So, so we dress for comfort everywhere that we go. Well, it's inappropriate. There's a time and a place for the way we dress and everything that we do. And it's the same way with God. There comes a point that God requires of us that he tells us that we're not supposed to dress for comfort. I will be honest, I am an anti-Tie guy. I am anti-Tie. I do not like neckties. I don't think they're of God. (laughs) I cannot understand the purpose of why someone would willingly put something around their neck that chokes them for eight hours during the day. Now, that is your own thing. I am not condemning you. Okay, that's just me personally. If I don't have to wear a tie, I will not wear a tie. It's so bad that when I go to a funeral, I have to ask my, my wife, do I need to wear a tie to this? I get the look. <laughs> okay, that means, yes, I need to wear a tie. That's how much I'm anti-tie. But there comes a point in our lives where we have to dress and it's not comfortable. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. to put off those old things. You're no longer to wear those things that you are comfortable with, that you wear. But you're to clothe yourself now in the newness of Christ. You're to put on that which is new in Jesus. You're supposed to change your outfit and it might not be comfortable at times. It's like God comes to us and he presents to us this beautiful suit. Comes all packaged. It's got its own little cover. And sometimes what we do is we see it, and God tells us, listen, get rid of the old. Get rid of those old sweatpants. Get rid of that old sweatshirt, because you're different now, and you don't need to be wearing that out in public. I got something new for you. And so we get excited, and we come over, and we, we do a little peek, come back. Do a little peek and then we come back and, and, and we do the comparison thing and we look, at, we look at those comfy sweats that we haven't washed in a week and, and we look at the hoodie that we like and those thick socks and, and we're like, oh, but it's so comfortable. I'm so used to it. it. just It forms to my body. And then we look over here and we're like, oh man, when I really begin to look at that, I can't watch TV with that. Mm. I can't eat cereal with that. I can't play football in this. You see, it's the same thing with God. Jesus comes to us and says, here's the deal. You should no longer be comfortable with the old things. I'm going to call you out and say there's going to be things that you're going to have to put on that are going to be uncomfortable. You're now limited. You're now limited, so you can't do what you used to formerly know. That friends with benefits thing, you can't be comfortable with that anymore because you're wearing this. You're wearing my presence. You have clothed yourself in something new you know why it's so hard to motivate ourselves to leave the old things because we don't have a view of god and how he views us if we begin to lay hold grab hold embrace and understand the way god views us we would approach sin totally different If we began to understand and appreciate what God gives us and what's available to us, we would probably willingly burn the hoodie and the sweatpants and the old thick socks and willingly put this on even though it seems a little uncomfortable at times. See, being clothed in the newness of Jesus is an eternal benefit. It means that it's a continual process. Everything that we're doing now is in preparation for Christ. I hate to tell you, but here's a newsflash. Following Christ is more about him than it is about us. If you haven't gotten that by now, you will real quick. Everything that Jesus takes out of us to prove that we are his followers is all about him. You say, well, that is absolutely selfish. Well, it's absolutely selfish that you're getting upset that Jesus wants to take the ugly stuff out of your life. Hmm. Being a follower of Jesus means that we live different. And we dress different. It means that there's a point we're going to have to put on things that are just not comfortable for us. And we're really going to have to let go of those sweatpants and that hoodie. The scriptures tell us that we shouldn't be comfortable with the old nature of lying or stealing or gossiping or slandering. We shouldn't be comfortable with those old things at all. Because the truth is, every Christ follower will encounter discomfort. but it has its eternal benefits. Now, please understand that discomfort is not our motto. So don't be a martyr, all right, for discomfort. All right, you don't have to go around, well, Jesus is working on me in this deep thing in my life, this sin, and I'm just not happy about it. All right, no one called you to be a martyr for that. What we are called to do is embrace it with joy and excitement. Because it has eternal benefits. Christ is preparing us for what He has planned, but the only way we will know what He's preparing us for is by renewing our minds with the word and reading the word and applying it in our lives. The way we live in our li- the way we live our lives in private and in public is not for the purpose of defending God. God doesn't need defending. The reason we do is so it will reveal the truth of Christ. See, some of you have a really good home life. You got it down, you got a really good church life. For some reason, they don't match. Jesus doesn't need defense because he's the defender. we're comfortable at home because our family's comfortable and no one else knows what we do and we're comfortable at church because we got this really good thing going we just worship Jesus give our little offering we know all the right words to say how you doing oh good brother i'm doing great i just abused my wife 10 minutes ago before i got to church what if what if we really talk like that? Brother, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Yeah, I was just looking at porn about 45 minutes ago before I got here. But praise God, hallelujah. The truth and the evidence, the proof has to match everywhere. I was reading about 30 to 40 year olds. The reason they're leaving the body of Christ is because they hate the hypocrisy, they don't like the evidence that they're seeing. We have to understand that if we're going to follow Jesus, we can't wear it all. We can't put on the sweatsuit and, and the pants and the hoodie and the socks and throw the suit coat over it and throw the tie on and say, this is good enough. If we're going to follow Christ, there has to be a consistency of proof. There has to be a consistency of evidence that speaks the truth of God Everywhere. So here's the deal. If you have a language problem, why are you hiding it? Seriously. Why not be authentic? Why don't you find somebody to hold you accountable and say, listen, Jesus needs to work with me on my language, and I need your help. If you're struggling with the abuse of pornography Why don't you tell somebody And say Jesus and I need to work on this And I need your help You're struggling with the fact because You're tormented constantly because You sexually abuse someone take off the sweatpants and the sweatshirt and put on the coat and come to somebody and say Jesus is trying to work with me on this but I need your help we can't settle for comfort anymore I have accountability I have an accountability partner And there are days that I have to tell them the truth. Not that I don't ever tell them the truth, but I tell them the truth. I dread telling them the truth. But it's the most freeing thing that I can do. Because then it makes room for Jesus to work. The way we live our lives in private and in public is to reveal the truth of Christ. Christ through our language, through our thoughts, through our actions, through our finances. So I leave you with this. The stage has been set. Act 1 is now officially complete in understanding of how we are to reveal Jesus by loving Christ. We've learned that lo- what loving Jesus looks like by studying the goal to love Jesus, love people, and love community. We looked at his supremacy and the fact that he is God. The man Christ Jesus. We looked at his motivation that regardless of how much suffering we're in, we can be motivated because Christ loves us and he gave his life for us. We looked at what it means to have freedom and be responsible to do the stuff of God that he has given us to give, to do. And the proof is that we can no longer be ignorant but the proof is that we live evidence that demonstrates truth would you stand with me so father god we just we come before you god we're so grateful and we're so thankful for your love for your salvation for the evidence and the truth. Father, I pray that this won't be some cute little series that we've discussed over the past couple weeks. I pray this would be our lifestyle of loving you. I pray that all these things, God, that we have tackled during these past weeks, Father God, I pray that they will remain in our hearts and in our minds at a great depth, that they will challenge us, that they will call us into question when we come face to face with you. I pray, Father God, that this is the beginning of our transformation. Emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. The beginning of our transformation individually and together as a body. Father God, we... As hard as it is for us to want to say that we're excited about what you are going to reveal to us next, it's so scary, but God, we just want to willingly embrace it. So Father, I pray that we won't be circumstantial. I pray that we'll learn to die. And Father, we will dress even when it feels uncomfortable and uneasy, but we'll clothe ourselves in your newness. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.